0: Hey, this is B.T. Wolf and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dublab. And today it's my real pleasure to be joined by X-Ray visionary, superhuman (laughs) casting director and producer, Sarah Finn. With well over 100 feature films and multiple awards to her name, Sarah is responsible for building out the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe, the most successful film franchise of all time as well as casting and co-producing the Oscar-winner Best Picture Everything Everywhere All at Once, the most awarded film in movie history, along with Crash, Three Billboards, and so many others. Regularly dubbed as the most valuable email address in Hollywood, and you can understand why, Sarah's responsible for Robert Downey Jr.'s blockbuster return through to the seminal casting of Chadwick Boseman in Black Panther. So while awards and accolades seem to follow her wherever she goes, Sarah remains unfazed, being motivated by the joy, electrical charge, and often tears she feels when she finally finds that right person for the part. A true believer in others, Sarah has been responsible for changing the lives of so many for the better. Sarah Finn, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Oh my gosh, BT, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I think the tears will just start right now,
0: okay? <laughs> so we met originally at a Mary Claire Power Woman event almost exactly a year ago. Yeah. Um, and I remember it very well. We'd been asked to go to this event because I guess we're power women. And I was so ambivalent about going, let's just say, I actually had a bit of a panic attack and I got there and I was looking around and there was a sea of faces. And then I saw this like luminous person. I thought, okay, I found one person I can chat with. And I think we spent the entire day. Just chatting. Thankfully, we did. Only to each other. And I
1: felt the same. I felt the same. I saw you and I thought, who is this very cool person? I really want to meet her.
0: You were also so funny because you were being so low key about the whole thing. And then you just had like the feature article with Mary Claire. (laughs) Yeah, it was very flattering and very nice. And yes, they had a whole picture
1: and a whole story and they did sort of a comic book graphic. Jessica Goldstein wrote the article and it was really lovely. And I thought very um, thoughtful because uh, casting directors don't always get uh, the attention maybe, for doing the job that we do. So for them to kind of hone in on who is this woman? Wait a minute, let's put these pieces together. She's done the whole MCU was very special. I was very honored.
0: Are you comfortable being in the light in that
1: way it's mixed i have mixed feelings on the one hand yeah our job is behind the scenes and it's to advocate for others and to help support right the directors and the vision and the actors and and our job is not to advocate for ourselves but i think that i've been doing this long enough that i'm starting to notice that perhaps the lack of recognition for casting directors the fact that the academy doesn't have an oscar category things like that actually have an impact and they have an impact on my colleagues and, um, and our profession, and so in a similar way that it's easier for me to advocate for actors, I find now that I'm very passionate in speaking up for other casting directors <laughs> so and, and championing their work. And so I think the article for me, um, yeah, it was a little bit uncomfortable, but I also was really grateful that they were shining a light on the craft of it's- casting and the work that we do.
0: Yeah, well, exactly, and I also feel like sometimes... The individual is is really representing the collective, you know, and so something can be personal on the one hand, but actually it's really about tapping into something universal. And by by bringing it to the personal, it helps shine a light on the bigger picture. Exactly. Well, the name of this show is Orange Juice for the Years, and it is taken from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that really goes, which we still know very little about. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, Sarah, what does that quote mean to you? It is a
1: beautiful quote. And I think it means, well, first of all, that orange juice is kind of this nourishing enlivening thing, right? It, it feeds us. It feeds our body and soul. The other thing that I think is kind of funny about it is like when you drink orange juice, you're thrust into the present moment, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> like whether you've just brushed your teeth or had coffee or whatever, I feel like it's always this complete experience. And I feel like that's what happens with music, that, that as soon as you hear it, you're in the present. You're more connected with yourself and sort of more connected
0: with everything. So what was the first song that imprinted on you?
1: Luckily, I've been around music my whole life. Uh and my father would play guitar for us when we were little and we were lucky to get bedtime songs. And so the first song that imprinted is a song that he used to sing to us and it was kind of a story and we would get to kind of dance around and sing along with him and there's a line in it, you know, makes me feel so sad. But we weren't sad at all. Of course, when we got to that line, we were laughing and running. And and it was just a, a great memory. And there's something about that song that when I hear it, which isn't often, it's not a very well-known song, but it brings me instantly back to that time, very young, maybe three or four years old in my living room with my siblings, you know, in that space. And that time in my life where I think I was still very innocent. though I was very young and my family was still together, which didn't last much longer in my mm. life. So I think that's a really special memory, and that song went deep.
0: And which recording are we going to hear?
1: We're going to hear Yellow Bird, which is actually based on uh, Haitian poem and folk song and was put to music, the version we're going to hear is the Mills Brothers. And I chose that version, even though it was just my dad on acoustic guitar, he always had such a twinkle in his eye when he sang the song. And I feel like they really captured that. They captured the playfulness and the joy.
0: Yellow bird, up high in banana tree. sit all alone like me. Did your lady friend leave your nest again? That is very sad, makes me feel so bad. You can fly away in the sky away. You're more lucky than me. And that was Yellow Bird by the Mill Brothers. This was the song that Sarah Finn chose as the first track that imprinted on her. And you described this like very idyllic family setting with you and your siblings and your father sing you this song after dinner, perhaps, yep. or, um, on the guitar. And so then just paint out that scene a little more. Okay, so I was actually
1: born in Des Moines, Iowa. My father was a museum director when I was young. So he had been at the Des Moines Art Center and then he got a job at the Hudson River Museum in Yonkers, New York. And we moved when I was two. Um, And I have two older sisters and my brother is a little older than me. We're just a little over a year apart. We're very close in age and in spirit. So we all four moved and my dad had taken these museum jobs really to support a family. My father was an artist and a painter. So there was a lot of Art in the house. He played guitar. My sister played the piano. My other sister played the clarinet. My brother and I tried Suzuki. I was not very good at that <laughs> Suzuki violin. Um, but we really were encouraged to.
0: What about of your explore mom?
1: All of these. My mom well really became a writer and an editor, and she had been at Cornell University on a full scholarship where she met my dad coming from Brooklyn and the first one in her family to go to school. Uh, It was a big deal in the 1950s. uh, But when they had one child and then three more, (laughs) she really was home taking care of us. And she later went back to school and got all her degrees. Uh, But she still loved to write. And I remember this old typewriter. And uh, we loved watching her click away and, and type on this. And she loved theater. So my mom had done some community theater uh, when she was younger, and I think that their love of film and theater really influenced me from a very young age. She had been able to, as a child, take the train from Brooklyn into the city and save up all her babysitting money and see all these incredible shows on Broadway. Really this golden age of theater and musicals on Broadway in the 40s, uh, in the 1930s and 40s. So she grew up on that. And my dad, through the museum, met all kinds of artists. Jacques Lipschitz, and he developed this whole thing where Pete Seeger would come on the river in the summer. So we were, and we were encouraged to do ceramics and music and draw. I never felt like that was my <laughs> strength,
0: but I loved stories. It sounds incredibly stimulating like between the kind of academic side and I imagine different philosophies and ways of living and then the art It sounds very kind of activating in a lot of areas. Yeah. Was there a film that you saw early on that really imprinted like a first film you really remember?
1: I remember The Wizard of Oz (laughs) because you know back in the old days it was on (laughs) once a year. So it was a big event and we got to stay up late. We couldn't really stay up that late as a kid. We had to bed very early, but uh, but that was always an event. And I was kind of terrified. I mean, I think we were all we're a little terrified of the monkeys and the, the <laughs> wicked witch. But uh, <laughs> who melts with a bit of water. <laughs> but it was wonderful. And I remember that. And we actually lived a little bit of Hastings lore. Billy Burke, who played The Good Witch, lived not far from where we were living in this place. And so she was a kind of an outsized figure in my imagination. And so that movie imprinted, but I think to my parents' credit, they were not snobbish at all. So we would equally see like a Bond movie and like Cocteau's La Belle et la Bête. And I think that really informed me. And I think I bring that into my work because I know there's people out there who might want to hate on Marvel or whatever, or not, you know, give it the do as a quote cinematic art. But I think that the people that I work with have such a range of knowledge and love of cinema and love of the arts that they're drawing on that I feel like you don't have to really make so many distinctions. You know, Um, there's all forms of
0: storytelling and all forms of art. Hey, I think this world and human beings could use a lot less judgment, (laughs) judgmentalness. So that sounds wonderful that you got that from your parents early on. Yeah. And that you could appreciate such a broad spectrum of experiences and that you were so immersed, you know, in the arts and in music and, Um, theatre. What were you like within this whole sort of scene? What were you like as a young Sarah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I recently found a picture of myself. I don't have a lot of pictures, but I recently found one of me in about second grade and she looked pretty happy. Um, and this was, you know, in spite of, I would say a lot of kind of turmoil that happened. My parents separated when I was about five. Uh, there were a lot of changes, um, a lot of moves that I encountered later, but I think that having the arts was really a a solid go-to for me. My brother and I especially, and my sisters, you know, kept playing music and doing different things, but my brother and I got into, you know, he played the bagpipes and I played the Irish drum for a while and we started performing at a pretty early age, just doing plays and things like that, being in chorus and acapella groups. So I think that really sustained and fed me.
0: Tell us about your years at Friends, the Quaker School. How long were you there?
1: I was only there two years, uh, but it was phenomenal. It was phenomenal. It was uh, very much um, in the Quaker spirit, I think. And I was encouraged to, and I think this is part of the Friends philosophy, to really go out and make my own form of study and follow the things that I was most interested in. And they were incredibly open in terms of how that might express itself and what that might look like. And I remember getting a grant um, to go see theater because it was expensive and I didn't have any money. And, you know, so they helped me get, even if it was standing room
0: What tickets. age were
1: you? That would have been, I would have been about 15. Oh, so this was later. This was later, yeah. I went there for my last two years in high school. But it was a really, again, very open, very stimulating environment at the school, very supportive and pretty remarkable because... I wasn't a Quaker, but when you are going to the school, you're kind of following certain Quaker rituals. And one of those was silent meeting. Mm -hmm. And as part of the silent meeting, you're quiet unless you're moved to stand up and say something. And I remember that we were all students there at the time that John Lennon had been killed. And we had actually been tasked with an assignment to, to, there was a book called Time and Again by Jack Finney. And the assignment that we were all given, the whole class, was to find spaces in New York City that resembled exactly the way they were 100 years ago. Because it's a book about time travel. Mm. So because of that, a lot of the class had chosen the Dakota. And they were there. This gets me emotional just thinking about it. They were there and they had seen the perpetrator of the crime walking around and so most of the silent meetings at the Quaker school people were quietly like studying for an exam on their lap or sleeping or passing notes but in this occasion it was really um, very profound and very magical because the students everyone had a way to express their grief and express what was happening for them and there was never a meeting again like that but to have that space open for people to speak from their heart and speak from their soul was really powerful. And that's one of the things I remember most about my time at Friends.
0: And do you think that kind of coming together and going deep into the expression, everyone being able to express themselves and their emotions, do you think that's something that became foundational for you later on? Was there anything that stayed with you from that time? I'm sure it did. I feel like that's almost the highest, right, that we can shoot
1: for, is to bring people together and allow them to share and connect.
0: And you described your high school self as a bit of an overachiever. <laughs> so were you always very academic? That's a part we haven't really discussed. Obviously, you talked about the artistic Sarah. Um, were you very, like, straight A's and... I was.
1: Yes, I was a bit Hermione-ish. Well, and I loved school and I loved learning. I really did. And genuinely. So that part was really fun for me. But I also came from an academic family. My dad's grandfather was president of university. My mom, like I said, got a full scholarship as a young woman to an Ivy League school. And so I came from an academic family where that was encouraged. My older siblings were all straight A students. So I also had a lot of pressure. And I put it on myself. I wanted to do well. So I did. I did get those grades. I remember in in one part of middle school, I used to always flip my tests over because I didn't want to be like, The nerd or the brain. But I also probably had a dream from a young age to go to Yale. I really wanted to go to Yale. And uh, I had my sights kind of set on that partially because of the theater, but also because I knew I could get a good education. So I ended up applying early.
0: You know, given it is a part of who you are and your eclectic nature. Yeah. Didn't you spend some time living in a commune?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did. So after moving a bit, In Hastings-on-the-Hudson, my dad became interested in Sufism, uh, which is a mystical branch of Islam, and ended up finding out about a Sufi commune in upstate New York. And it was just my brother and I then, my two older sisters had moved out, and uh, one day he announced (laughs) that we were moving. So we went from the fairly affluent suburbs of Westchester to a Shaker community that had been turned into this other community, which I would say was drug-free and very spiritual. And I think coming out of a period of turmoil for my brother and I was a shock to the system, but also a really profound experience and, and probably a really healing one, even though we were too young to sort of put that together at the time.
0: Sarah, <laughs> what was the first album that really shaped Who You Are and had a major impact?
1: I think I would have to say Tapestry by Carol King. My two older sisters had a big influence musically. They were super cool and and still are and all the albums around the house really um played into my my soul and my psyche and so between Cat Stevens, Elton John, James Taylor, Carly Simon, it really Joni Mitchell, but I think Carole King was the one that that spoke to me the most. I learned every word to every song and that album really stayed with me and I think really affected who I became.
0: And we're going to listen to Home Again. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so now we're going to take a listen to Home Again from Carol King's record, Tapestry.
1: Sometimes I wonder if I'm ever going to make it
0: home again. It's so far and out of sight. And that was Home Again. That was by Carol King from her album, Tapestry. And this was the record that Seraphin chose as the first album that really imprinted on her or really shaped who she is and ha- had a major impact. And this came via your older sisters. You could sing the whole record, uh, every word. Couldn't you also play it on guitar? I could. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I used to play guitar. I left that part out. I used to play guitar as well in high school. I kind of never was
0: without it. And didn't you, instead of giving a valedictorian speech, didn't you perform an original song? I
1: did. Yeah, I wrote a song. I felt like that was the best way I could express myself at that time. What was the song called? I don't remember. (laughs) What was it about? I have to find it. It's on a cassette tape somewhere in our garage. It was about, um, and here comes Joni Mitchell again with the seasons. I think it was about growing into the people that we're meant to be and the friendships we form along the way and moving on and moving into our lives.
0: Had you written a lot of songs? Were you songwriting at that time? I was, time?
1: yeah. I was songwriting all through my adolescence
0: and my teens, yeah. When do you think you stopped writing songs? Do you remember around the time?
1: I think that it really was when I when I went to college. I think I honestly got so busy. Mm. I had so much schoolwork and I also wanted to try to focus on an academic education. I was going to be a history major and I wanted to take a range of classes and really dedicate myself to that. And I, Planned to not even do theater, but I didn't make it through first semester, freshman year, without trying out for Godspell, <laughs> um, which I got into, which was fun, and I did the by my side with the guitar. But I think that as as I went through school, I had less and less time to play music, and and I look back and say, okay, well, I made that choice, right? We're all responsible, but I did love I loved theater, and I was still doing music. I was in an a cappella singing group, and I was still doing some musicals, so I still had it in my life. And then I was working a lot, too. I had a job at school. I had to work, you know, during every break and summer vacations. What was your job? Try to pay bills. I got to be a fast typist, like my mom in high school. I took a typing class. It was a very practical class. And I could type like 120 words a minute. So I got a job as a secretary. And so I would just temp. But I really started work the day after finals, you know, to make enough money for tuition and stuff and then go back to school. So I think I just got, I got busy, but I, it stayed in my life in different ways. And I married a man who's a musician. and I have three uh, sons who are musicians. So it's coming back around. It's coming back around.
0: So you did end up going to Yale, like your dream, and you did study history, but you also studied theater.
1: Yep. I also studied theater. I kind of couldn't stay away. And actually the two went really well together. Because for me, history, it came really naturally because it just felt like a big story. And the more details I could learn about a period or what did they wear and how did they heat the house and what did they have for breakfast and how did they get that breakfast, like every detail of it sort of worked perfectly for my work as an actress and learning how to create a character and all the dramaturgy that we would learn at Yale. And so the two went really well together. By senior year... I was thinking about double majoring and I bailed. I did not want to write two thesis (laughs) papers. So I ended up pivoting just to a theater major. Um, But I had also spent a semester abroad, which was great. And I think by senior year, I actually was finally learning to relax a little bit Mm. and
0: not work all day and night. Yeah, because that seems to be a theme. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about your time at Ensemble Studio Theatre, whose multidisciplinary approach called for everybody to do everything. How did that inform your later work?
1: So after I graduated from Yale, I moved to New York City. I was lucky to find out about this theater company. And uh, Kurt Dempster was the artistic director for many, many years and really shepherded many of the artists that we see out there now, shepherded them along in their writing careers as well as performing um, and directing. And yes, the idea was if you wanted to act, you better run a lighting board or be a stage manager, uh, not only so that everything functions and everybody kind of pays their dues, but so that you understand how it's all interrelated. And that was a really valuable experience. And it helped me get the confidence to start producing theater too, to take these playwrights that we were reading and help put their work up. So I think as part of my early training in my 20s, it it was really working with writers and directors and producers and making things happen, and I think that that definitely did inform everything that I'm still doing today.
0: And how did that then lead you into casting? Wasn't it via an early mentor, best friend of yours? Yes,
1: yes. It was via Risa Brayman-Garcia, who was directing at the time uh, and casting. And I met her through Ensemble Studio Theater, and I was doing a one-act play festival with her, and assistant directing her in a play that she was directing. And I was always running off to one job or another. And <laughs> she looked at me one day and said, "What are you? What are you doing? Just come cast this movie with me." And at the time, I still was interested in in acting, and I was starting to assistant direct and do these other things. So I thought, okay, just this just this one job, I'll just do it. But I had never really looked at casting from that perspective, from the sort of holistic, we're going to put every piece of this tapestry together and see what it makes. And it kind of blew my mind. And so she had offered me that one job. And three years later... I sort of looked up and went I love this (laughs) I love this and it also feeds my I do like to work hard and casting is kind of this job where you never feel like you can do enough you can never see enough actors you can never know enough you can never be well enough informed because there's always more to absorb
0: it's like no stone left unturned exactly exactly (laughs) And so then you moved from New York to Hollywood. Yes. I had
1: been doing theater still and acting and I came out here and ironically booked a national tour. But by that point, I had met my husband, my now husband, and we were terrible at being apart. So I think it all kind of organically flowed Mm. from one part of my life into another. And I think that getting married and starting to have kids, I also probably became a bit more private as a person Mm. and was quite happy to be behind the camera.
0: Was 200 Cigarettes the first? Was that your first? Yes, and
1: this is a crazy just piece of the way the world works because I had worked with Risa and she was taking a break to direct. She wanted to direct this feature film. And in the meantime, I needed a job. So I ended up taking a job at Paramount Pictures and then signing on there as director of features casting. And the first job, the first movie that got greenlit when I had just started there was 200 Cigarettes, which was Risa's film that she was directing.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: It was amazing. It was amazing. So we got to work together again, not long after we had just taken a break. Wow. It's kind of amazing when it happens. Yeah.
0: Tell us about the significance of Crash for you and why that felt like a kind of pivotal moment or a turning point in your career?
1: I think that for for me with Crash, it was a script that I, I felt had a lot of potential and I had worked on for a while and before it even got going and put the pieces together. And I think that You know, maybe looking back on the film, people will have different views and different opinions of it sort of culturally and and the way it sits now. But at the time, to have it kind of tap into people's emotions and have this overwhelming response to the film was really empowering for me because I had been so invested in building this cast piece by piece for years you know and and so to see that resonate i think was very powerful and kind of helped me as a struggling casting director all of a sudden be a little more visible and and have access to
0: more opportunities was that also around the time you felt you wanted to become more private i mean how did you then feel suddenly you know also being more more in the spotlight that really didn't happen at all so there's no worry <laughs>
1: I didn't get to invited to any parties. I wasn't invited <laughs> to the Oscars. It's like we are really pretty outside of the circuit. The, the casting community is not often included. So, so it wasn't like I was all of a sudden thrust into the into the limelight at all. And I think that. That almost came along much later. I did, I think, my first ever round of of sort of red carpet interviews with Avengers Endgame. So many, many years later was when I had the courage to kind of step out and start to really talk about myself and about my work.
0: And how did you get involved in the Marvel stratosphere? Wasn't it via Fantastic Four and your son's no, love? I, they loved it. <laughs> they
1: loved it. And again, this was the time before streaming and all that when they were little, you know, you'd have your VHS tapes. And so we didn't have a million of them. And that was the one that they wanted to watch over and over again. So I was very familiar with it. And I had worked, I had met Luis D'Esposito, who had just come into Marvel on another film. And so in casting, we basically interview or audition for a job the way other department heads do, the way actors do. And so he brought me and my partner then, Randy Hiller, into Marvel to interview on Iron Man. And that was in 2006. We got that job, (laughs) luckily. And part of it was, I think, I'm sure um, we had a nerd fest because I walked into the very first interview meeting and there was a big statue of Dr. Doom. And so- I felt like I got this <laughs> all about this. And I did even read, I, I will confess that I read comic books as a kid and actually Fantastic Four, maybe because of the brother-sister thing. I'm not sure why it was that one that I particularly liked, but that was that was my favorite superhero comic book.
0: So like from Proust to DC. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes to your family's, you know, eclectic roots. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and tell us, of course, you've talked about this before, but why selecting you know, Robert Downey Jr. was a kind of controversial, risky choice at the time, but it ultimately also became the linchpin for building that whole world.
1: Yeah, he was a controversial choice at the time because of his personal history. He had substance abuse issues that were publicized, and this was uh, the beginning of what they were trying to build as a, quote, family-friendly franchise. So that was, I think a factor for maybe the powers that be. But creatively, he was such an exciting idea. He was such a kind of magical, perfect choice that I think we all pushed for that and wanted to find a way to make it happen. And he also wanted to see it happen. And I think his willingness to to be part of a process, to kind of go in and fight for it, also really showed everybody that he's in a great place and he's more than ready for this. In fact, he's going to seize it.
0: (laughs) So like rewinding almost 20 years now. It's crazy. Did you have any sense of what was to come or the power and responsibility in your hands? Because I know you think you're invisible, Sarah, but I don't (laughs) think that's true. And literally when I was doing, you know, some notes for this, the most, you know, Googled question in relation to you is how do I get Sarah Finn's email address? <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm very glad I haven't Googled that, Petey. <laughs> well, I didn't. It just came up. That's what everyone's asking on on the interweb. So wow. did you have a sense of what was to be? No, I had no sense of what was to be.
1: Um, and really it was it was what's the task at hand. Right. And I felt lucky to get, you know, the Iron Man job. And then, and then from there, it was Captain America and Thor. And then I heard about the Avengers and what that whole plan was, which at the time was mind boggling to me. And then once the Avengers happened, right, once that opened, and it it really was just moving for everybody because we didn't know what that gamble was going to be. And I think everybody really worked so hard to try to make it as fun and fantastic as we could.
0: And to kind of make it cool, because at the beginning it wasn't cool, right? It was
1: so not cool. When I was calling people for Captain America at that time, even Iron Man, no one knew who that was. Uh, No one knew who Captain America was. No one wanted to wear tights? No one one was going to put on tights or a cape or for some, you know, hokey old guy from another era. It was not cool. And so there were a lot of hurdles all along the way. But once Avengers happened, the wind was at our back a little bit more. I think people got what didn't seem as risky. And now it's continued to evolve. And we could talk forever about that but i feel like there's still so many challenges that are fun to
0: tackle. But i think the ability to look at the interconnected nature of the bigger picture of something you're creating and building which i think you probably always had, you know, from doing all those different disciplines early on and being encouraged to try all these different things and and because you were interested in all these different things, but then also, you know, from ensemble, you know, theater studio and learning that it wasn't just doing kind of the sexy stuff, you know, it was doing all the behind the scenes bits. And I think it's very rare that actually people know how to build the whole world potentially, you know, because you do have the directing skills and you do have the producing skills and you do have the acting skills. And so you're coming at it from all angles. Yeah. And I think that's why it is really such a kind of
1: enriching and challenging job. It's a great, fun thing to do. <laughs> it's hard and it can be stressful. And I do feel like you said, the responsibility. I feel the responsibility to every actor I meet. I know that they're being vulnerable. Their dreams are here. Their livelihood is here with me and and they want the job. And so I think that every time I meet someone, I'm I'm conscious of that responsibility. And then the responsibility to the director, I feel like I want to kind of enter their dream right i want to i want to be with them on their journey to help them realize it and help make it better than they could even imagine and then the responsibility to my team that i work with and to the financiers (laughs) studio and then ultimately to the fans right um and sometimes like with everything everywhere again we had no idea how that movie was going to resonate and connect with people we just wanted to make the best film we could make
0: So I know that you got a lot of joy from bringing your old pal, Mark Ruffalo, into the Marvel Universe, having said years before that you knew you guys would find a way to work together, um, which is also what we talked about a bit with Risa, that serendipity. Has that happened a lot to you in your life?
1: I think it has. And I think that it's something I stay open to (laughs) because uh, sometimes, sometimes things can come around and surprise you. There's a lot of ways in which certain... Actors and certain people have have circled back and um, Chadwick Boseman certainly is somebody that I'm very grateful that I got to meet when he was a working actor, kind of auditioning and coming up and then to have experience of casting him as Black Panther and then really through his life, which ended too soon.
0: So the first conversation you and I had, and this connects to the serendipitous aspect, which is hard to really pin down. Because it's not meant to be pinned down. But the, the conversation you and I had in this um, strange stadium buffet. Yes, I remember this.
1: There was nothing for you to it's eat. Nothing.
0: Well, I didn't think there was much for anyone to eat. It was a weird food selection for supposedly somewhat health conscious or whatever.
1: There was a lot of fried food. I yeah, remember
0: Yeah, that. a yeah. lot of sugar, a lot of like butter fingers. <laughs> but, you know, there we were sat having... Um, A very different, let's say, conversation about the invisible, the intuitive, the energetic. Talk about the role that that plays in your work, because I feel it's your greatest gift, even though maybe you don't talk about it a lot. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I think certainly I couldn't do what I'm doing if I didn't have the ability to kind of trust my intuition. And I think that my work ethic (laughs) balances me out because even if I'll have an instinct about something early on, I still feel like I need to prove it to myself and prove it to everybody else. I need to make my case, right? I need to get to my thesis and be able to argue my point. But the two really do go hand in hand for me. And I think that as I've gotten older and as I've gotten more experience, I've let myself trust that more and listen to it more and um, and not be afraid to talk about it
0: <laughs> when it's it's also very emotional for you yeah. you know when you find that right person and I imagine that's part of your guidance system as well those tears and tell us why it's so emotional
1: well I think I'm all in. <laughs> when I take something on and I'm going to do it, I'm all in. This is going to sound kind of corny to say, but I'm a very corny person actually. I feel like I have to sort of fall in love with this character that's wanting to be born that we're trying to find and the process of searching and looking is so rigorous and intense and the whole time you're sort of you're just hoping you're going to find this perfect expression and then really we get to watch a character be born right right in front of us and we're we're part of it and we watch it happen and it is just i think emotional i'm just i'm fully in i'm fully into the story i'm into the process you usually work for it <laughs> so by the time you get there you're like ah, we've arrived, because it does take a lot in the looking. You're really paying close attention to everyone you meet, to everything that you're absorbing and listening to from all different parts, right, from the from the director mostly, but there's many sources of information. And also I think we're always trying to be as conscious and mindful and aware of all the cultural connotations. And so we're just completely invested. So by the time we get there, yes, yes, it's a big moment. And I also am genuinely so happy for the person whose life is about to change.
0: How is it though to navigate and negotiate sort of showing that emotional and say vulnerable part in that kind of world?
1: It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And throughout a lot of my career, I was often the only woman in the room, I was often the only woman on set, and I really felt like I needed to keep it pretty buttoned up in fact I somebody had said to me once when they met me they thought oh I thought you were you know super buttoned up and and preppy and all this and I'm thinking, oh my gosh I grew up on a commune you know but like I I kind of tamped down that part of myself and I didn't ever want to be perceived as flaky or you know anything like that so I think I worked extra hard but now again my work world has changed. I'm working with a lot of open-minded people. I'm working with more women than ever. I think I worked with one female director in my first 100 films. Wow. And now I'm probably 80% of the projects I'm working on have women involved in a position of power. So, so that has changed. And I'm not saying that it's only women that bring that permission. I, I'm working with amazing men, you know, like Ryan Coogler and John Favreau and, you know, very, very supportive men. And I think in general, maybe people are a
0: bit more open. And are you unbuttoning a little bit? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But also, you know, you work in a world of a lot of ego and you come from a very different place. How do you also negotiate that aspect and how do you protect your sensitivity?
1: Well, maybe it helps that I am not in it so much, um, In it, not of it. Of it, not in it. (laughs) Maybe it helps a a bit that I'm of it and not in it. My life isn't centered around the industry. My husband's a public school teacher. My friends are mostly not in the industry. And I think it's very balancing. I think it also is just, I guess it's not who I want to be. It doesn't help me in my job. (laughs) It doesn't help me to see people more clearly or be better. And it's maybe just not who I ultimately want to be want to be I don't know if that sounds awful but I think I just would rather uh, be a bit more low-key now I still think we should get an Oscar so let's be really yeah. clear about
0: that I that's will not wear ego a
1: great dress and I will <laughs> <laughs> gladly go if I'm invited
0: Oscar people are you listening you don't have to wear a good dress you can wear go barefoot where what you might have worn on the commune you know <laughs> but again it's like there's a difference between a recognition which is you know something being recognized for what it is there's yeah. a truth there there's an acknowledgement and an honoring and that isn't the same as ego it's very different things and i think that i think ego gets confused a lot because confidence is not ego you can right. have a healthy sense of self and not be motivated by your ego, and vice versa. I love what you're saying because,
1: again, really kind of I think a little later in my life, I'm realizing that distinction. And I want that for other women. I want younger women to come up just having it, mm. not having to become aware of it, but having that sense of value, of inner inner worth, innate worth, and that your achievements standing in your power taking space is not about ego. It's about expressing yourself and having joy in who you are. And I think that that, that's really helpful for me. But I think that idea of when you get too identified, and for me, yes, I prefer not to think about the seraphim that's on the internet, because what I want to do is basically stay connected, I want to stay connected to all of life. I think you and I were talking about this. Sometimes too much, right? Sometimes there's like too many feelings going on, but I think that we're better. Certainly, I feel like I'm better as an artist, as a casting director, as a mom, as a friend, as a partner in every way without trying to get too much in my head and staying in my feelings and staying connected to other people. Uh, Because I hope as my work goes on, to continue representing people, right? To give people Mm. images on screen that are empowering, that are inspiring, that are potentially helpful.
0: Oh, I mean, that can't be underestimated, you know? And that, in a way, is the power and the responsibility. It's not so much, you know, the monetary, oh, suddenly this person could be, you know, this next superstar. That's the other side of it, which is also, I guess, a consideration, you know, of that sort of stratospheric rise but I think the representation, you know, what people, are, what kids are growing up and seeing and, you know, what's on their screens and you being ultimately a big decider of that, you know, of who is there and who is um, representing these different voices. That's the power and responsibility, really. Yeah,
1: it is. And, and I think part of what I do is try to understand who might connect, right? Who has the ability as an artist, as an actor, to connect with an audience. And the only way I can really tell that is if I am feeling something. Again, having that as a bit of a compass. What am I feeling? What are the people in the room with me feeling, watching this? Are they connecting? And then, because ultimately, that means that that person has maybe the power to connect with. And then look what's happened, sometimes a worldwide audience.
0: And I think it bears being said again that you do have this ability to see, and lots of people have said this about you, you have this ability to see a potential that often those individuals don't realize they have, you know, or to really see beyond even a performance or presentation or what's coming across, you know, that's pretty amazing. And that must be an intuitive sense.
1: It is, yeah, it's a lot of levels. <laughs> it's a lot of levels. It's energetic. And I miss being in the room with actors. A lot has changed in our profession because of the pandemic and now the strike. And I miss being in the room because oftentimes, you know, in the first 10 seconds that someone walks in a room, you learn so much about them. So then we find other ways to do that. But I would say it is energetic. It is intuitive. But I also think that I can see a lot about the way someone approaches their work. And where they are with their craft. And it's hard for me to even dissect where that comes from. I think it comes from having studied acting, thankfully, you know, all the way from, like you said, Chekhov. And we had a lot of different acting techniques at Yale that we were exposed to. And I got to study with Uta Hagen after Yale. And I had a teacher that just, uh, Carol Fox Prescott, who's a beautiful, amazing teacher who just talked about breath. And so sometimes I'll even notice if I'm working with an actor, like, are you holding your breath a little bit? So, so I think, and then we can work through that, like, just let it go. There's been many a jumping jack done in my office. <laughs> and, um, and so I think it's energetic, it's intuitive, but it also has to do with the craft and the skill that they bring. It has to do with the seriousness with which they approach their work and the passion and the willingness they have to share
0: all that. So you talked about obviously when you began, you maybe did one film with a, a woman director yeah. in a hundred. Yes. How do you feel about equality in the industry today? Because you also have a thirteen-person team, all women, which is your seraphin <laughs> casting. Um, yeah. How do you feel? Where do you feel the balance, the scales are right now?
1: I still think there's a lot to do. There's really still a lot of work to do in representation across the board. I think for women. I think people of color, I think different backgrounds, nationalities, ethnicities, gender identities, disabilities. I think there still really is a tremendous amount of work to be done. Stacey Smith at USC does a study and they're clocking it, which is great. So we can kind of have hard data to find out. But there's improvements. And what I see having the most impact for me is there's improvements in the whole pipeline so that it's not just a female director coming in, it's a female writer. And it's the infrastructure. Yeah, it's the infrastructure and and also allowing voice for different kinds of stories to be told.
0: And what about the role of the casting director? How do you feel about that today? Do you feel it's starting to get its dues? I think that I am always
1: hopeful. <laughs> I'm always hopeful. I do think Academy recognition is key. I think that until that happens, casting directors really may not have a seat at the table or be seen. On the same level as all the other department heads, really. I mean, all the other department heads bring options to the director. Mm. Our options haven't to be actors, artists. Humans. Which is a that's huge element, yeah. of the film. Yeah, and and really, we're expected to know over our career we built up a mental database of thousands and thousands of actors that we bring to the table, and and the ability to work with them, and the ability to discern who has the level of talent that's needed, and who's going to have the right chemistry, and. All of these things we're bringing, that's our craft. So I think until that craft is recognized, it is going to be hard. It is a banner year for casting directors, I think. I'll shout out a couple. You take like Allison Jones and Lucy Bevan, who did the Barbie movie. And allison has been casting amazing projects since Freaks and Geeks. The Office, Parks and Rec, Arrested Development. I mean, all of these shows. So you're not only looking at a great movie that she cast, but you can look at her body of work. Mm. Lucy also, incredible films. John Papsidera doing Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Ellen Lewis, who's worked with Martin Scorsese for decades and decades with Killers of the Flower Moon and promoting Lily Gladstone. Anyway, you can tell. I could go on and on and on, (laughs) but I'm very excited for my colleagues, and I hope that they all get the recognition and get invited to lots of parties. Parties seem to be a key word. you know. You know, we have been. Yeah, I've had <laughs> friends actually have to talk me into something that is a film that just won a Golden Globe, and I couldn't yeah. get in the door. It's been. It's a little bit. Um. Yeah, a little chip on my shoulder there.
0: If I can avoid every party, I'd be <laughs> happy. <laughs> it's not really the party. No, it's I celebrating. Get it. Yeah, yeah, celebrating what you made together. Do you think? There's actually a connection between those questions about, say, equality and casting directors. Do you think it's because typically casting directors have usually been women? I think we are
1: over 85% female.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: I would say draw your own conclusions there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'd say it speaks for itself. (laughs) So is Sarah Finn going to be telling the world her story anytime soon? I am
1: right now with you, BD. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, yeah, I would like to do that. I would like to do that in more ways. And again, hopefully with the goal of giving other women, other artists
0: permission to do the same. What is the music you would like to send into space?
1: I would like to send into space somewhere over the rainbow. And my favorite, favorite version of this is by Iz. It's a beautiful (laughs) Hawaiian musician and artist. And I love this so much because I think that you don't need to understand English. You don't even need to understand music. I think it really embodies a sense of kindness and beauty and joy and simplicity. And I think it's a very welcoming thing to send into space.
0: Beautiful. Well, now we are going to take a lesson to Somewhere Over the Rainbow, as performed by Israel Kamika Vivole. Ooh. was Somewhere Over the Rainbow, as performed by Israel Kamaka Vivole. And that was the music that Sarah chose to send into space because it transmits the kind of joy we need in the world right now. You chose this version as well because of your connection to Hawaii.
1: Yeah, yes. I've been lucky and spent a lot of time in the last couple decades in Maui because uh, my father and my stepmom lived there and uh, of course Maui has been in my thoughts a lot and as you said it's what is it a tonic for the soul a balm and there's a word aloha and with great appreciation and respect for that word and that culture and what it means and it does have to do with kindness and harmony and respect for other people and respect for the land and living in harmony and peace.
0: I may be wrong and if I am I'll cut this out but I also (laughs) thought aloha had a dual meaning which isn't it also shared in times of grief we'll find out it It has to do
1: with the spirit of welcoming and the spirit of warmth especially Mm.
0: for other people and the earth i feel as if our discord with one another is also of course bound with our kind of disconnection with mother earth and you know how she has been seen as a resource that we can keep extracting from and yeah, we, it definitely comes back to that idea of interconnection and we can't, we can't pull ourselves out of the whole system. We are all, you know, connected. We are all an ecosystem. So.
1: And I think that that, that word really encaptures that, that we're better when we take care of each other
0: and mm-hmm. our earth. What do you treasure most about life on earth? And also how do you feel about the state of our beautiful blue marble right now? Mm, it's a heavy time, isn't it? Um, I'm going to
1: lean fully into my corny and as my kids and a lot of people would say, cringe nature and just say love, 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 love. That's, that's what we have to treasure here on earth with each other and with nature, with our planet, with animals, with every human being. Um, we can't really have enough of it or spread enough of it or carry enough of it. That's very, very
0: corny. No, it's beautiful. I'm feeling it. This, <laughs> this room is glowing. <laughs> so now imagining a very sad time when you are no longer here in physical form, but you'll be out there, you know, somewhere over the rainbow. What is the song you'd like to have play at your funeral, memorial? Yes, as we're in America, we're
1: going, we're going fully in. It's it's "As" by Stevie Wonder. I think it's a beautiful song. It's also a very upbeat song. No one needs to be too sad. I'll be good. <laughs> I'll be good, and hopefully, my love will be left behind. That's the thing I hope will be left behind. Um, and I chose Stevie Wonder because I know I could have picked a lot of other esoteric or new age music or frankly you know female acoustic vocalists that i love but may not be my son's favorites <laughs> and i think stevie wonder in our family and even with my parents intergenerationally if we all had to pick
0: music to play in the car no one fights about stevie no one fights everybody agrees it's unanimous stevie you got it Stay on this planet, man. Yeah.
1: So I think I feel like I would want something that they could resonate with that wouldn't push them off. And I also love that again in a sort of dramatic way. I feel I feel like it's a complete experience. You know, he kind of gets loud in the middle of it, and it lets you get some of those feelings out. Life is not perfect.
0: It's a full cycle. Yeah. Okay. Well, now let's listen to "As" by Stevie Wonder. And that was As by Stevie Wonder. And that was the music that Sarah Finn chose as the song she liked to have play at her memorial because it is a Finn family favorite. No one, <laughs> no one raises an eyebrow at Stevie. Um, how do you feel about death? I feel okay about death. I feel, of course, a
1: little scared, right? We don't know what it is. Um, is. I'll feel a little sad to say goodbye to everybody that I love, but I feel like uh, it's going to be okay.
0: <laughs> you send me a postcard.
1: I'll send you a postcard you from the other You let me know side. how it is. Yeah, I yeah. will. The other side, that's what we can call it. Yeah. that has a lot of negative connotations Oh, in
0: our I culture. know. I know. And yeah. actually, I feel that that is something that needs that needs addressing, because yeah. you know death and life, death isn't really the opposite of life. And what do you feel life is about? That is a very big
1: question. I think fundamentally, life is about connecting, and it's about being fully yourself and expressing that um, and hopefully continuing to grow and evolve and sharing love. There's that word again. We can't get away from it.
0: The foundation. Yep. Yeah. What is the record you'd pass on to your three sons?
1: Oh, <laughs> it's not going to be their favorite, but here it goes. Here it goes, guys. I'm passing it along. I chose the Indigo Girls, and I think that, again, they encapsulate and embody a sense of Hopefulness, empowerment, freedom, acceptance. There's certain radical ideas, but I also love that their music is really hands on. And so I think that's for me something that I really connect with that, you know, guitars, mandolins, violins, and their voices are so powerful. I think that when we can sing along, we can kind of enter into the music a little more. So it's in my vocal range. <laughs> I was really able to connect. And I would hope that that kind of purity in songwriting and artistry will live on. I feel like as the world gets louder and faster and more technical and more complex. I hope that we will always have something to return to that brings us to a still place and a simple place. And I feel like their music um, really conveys that.
0: How do you feel about the notion of your legacy?
1: I feel hopeful that it will be positive. <laughs> and I, I guess I leave it to the world, right? Do you know that beautiful Maya Angelou quote? All right, I'm not gonna say this properly. This is my um, understanding of my Angelus quote. People will not remember you for what you said or what you did but how you made them feel.
0: Well, you make me feel very good, Sarah. Thank you. Um, So we're going to listen to, I think you chose chose Power of Two. Yes. From Swampophilia.
1: Oh, yes. And I love this song too because, yeah, it is about, it is that sense of connecting. And I've seen this play out in my life a lot with my parents and my children and my friends and my husband. And, you know, it's just, it's everything.
0: But before we hear that, what is the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? Wow.
1: I think it's got to
0: be kind of music that comes
1: from the soul, right? Music that really deeply connects me and others
0: together. And thinking about all the work that you've done and all the work that you're continuing to do, what do you hope to leave behind?
1: In my wildest dreams, I hope to leave behind um, a little more brightness and a little more connection in the world in my wildest dreams, if I would be so lucky.
0: Well, Sarah, I think you've done that in spades. So now we're going to take a listen to Power of Two from the record, Swampophilia by Indio Girls. And Sarah Finn, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Petey. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So we're okay, we're fine. Baby, I'm here to stop your crying. Chase all the ghosts from your head. I'm stronger than